Welcome to PR360, a weekly interview podcast dedicated to talking about the important topics within the public relations technology industry, hosted by Brett Deister and in partnership with Global Results Communication. Find out more information at globalresultspr.com. And welcome to a new episode of PR360, where we interview the top and brightest talent in the PR and tech industry. And with me, I have Barry Matsumore with me. And a little bit about him is that he has had a illustrious career in tech and in space. So if you're a Trekkie or love Star Trek, he's the one for you. He's had some work with Virgin Galactic, with Qualcomm. If you don't know what Qualcomm is, well, maybe you should figure it out. But I'll tell you a little bit about it. They basically are the number one CPU processors for mobile, especially Android. He's also done some work with SpaceX, being the Senior Vice President of Sales and Business Development. And he's also the CEO of BridgeCom Inc. He's advisory board member of Relativity, Relativity Space and a member of the board of directors at Space and Satellite Professionals International. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks very much. And so, first question, I know it's going to be really, really difficult. Are you a coffee or tea drinker? And the answer is both. Dark Ooh. coffee, and I am a snob because I do love my specific Japanese green tea. Ah, Japanese green tea as opposed to the regular yes. green tea. If it's regular green tea, I can't take it. I'm mm. sorry. Well, it happens. I mean, I'm not going to twist your arm for not taking it. But anyways, what is your typical day for you? Is it usually typical or is it atypical or not typical at all? The characteristic of my week, my month, is that it is very difficult to follow me because I'm simply in a different part of the country, different part of potentially the world on any given day. Uh, last couple weeks, I was in Qatar. I've been in Denver because that's where headquarters is, but I actually live in LA. I go to the DC once a month, and then I go to other parts of the US uh, during every month. So you're just a seasoned traveler. I have a fair number of airline miles. Modest, and I'll, I'll accept that. But anyways, moving on to kind of your roles at Qualcomm and SpaceX, kind of what led you to that and how these roles shaped you for your career now? Yes, you bet. So, so I think it's important to understand that I have a significant technical background and a business background. And I've used both in shaping what I do for all the companies I've been involved with. In SpaceX, I happen to be the lead for sales and business development, but I've also had leadership roles earlier on in my career in uh, rocket development. But by training, I'm an electrical engineer. So I'm kind of all over the place. Mm, so you really love tech is what I'm hearing. I do indeed. I've done, let's see, four, four different tech startups to date and can plan to continue in tech uh, until, I have, I, until I finish my career, whenever that is. Mm. So with all that, what kind of led you to really land in science or in space and technology field in general? I think that in large part, my entire career has been around some form of tech, whether it was in space early on at General Dynamics and Space Systems, 
or more recently in Bridgecom, and we're doing the state-of-the-art optical communications. And what, what were some people that inspired you to actually take this role? Mm, this is an interesting point. I don't know if the people inspired, anybody inspired me to take the role. It was more, I saw a link between a couple of different items, communications, space, and the ability in particular for the role I have to be able to shape the future and give that future the vision I see. And so what are some like skills and personality traits that someone needs to do to be a person that's in either the tech, science, or space field? Because they're all very different, but some similarities at the same time. First and foremost is a passion about that area. I don't know how anybody can work well in an early stage company, and certainly an early stage tech company, without being passionate about the specific topic. Or or go investigate it and find, find that passion in that area. All right. Everybody seems to need to have passion. That's a pretty good thing to actually have. Yeah. I, I think the worst thing in the world is when someone goes to an early stage company with the notion that they might make some money. It simply doesn't work that way. And if in fact, one wants to play the odds on money, the better odd is to go to the traditional larger company, take a salary job, you'll get, you'll get paid. But in, in early stage companies, uh, there's risks, but there's reward, but there's always that risk factor. So for our listeners, what kind of insight can you give for like working at a startup? Cause you touched a little bit about it, but it seems to be vastly different from working at a, one of the bigger na- multinational companies. Some key characteristics that I'll, I'll, I'll name some kind of classic characteristics, and then those things that I think are interesting, fast moving. So one needs to love change, needs to love the ability to, be, to make fast decisions. Those work really well in an early stage company. Working closely with the team and being able to communicate. Early stage companies, small companies have to communicate well in order to be agile and, and work quickly towards a direction. The, the market, the business environment, those things change, they have fluctuations, and they affect smaller companies more than bigger companies. So a small company needs to be able to react to those changes. Cross-team dynamics, I kind of talked about the communications aspect, but it really is people in a team need to work together and also work in different disciplines. The joke about about working in a startup is one may be the CEO and then the next day they're emptying the garbage. And it's because one needs to have all the roles covered because that's what that's what smart company uh, small companies do. As far as as far as me, uh, what I really like is a very open environment, whether it's communications, whether it's sharing ideas, that openness is key to making what early stage companies are interesting. The last thing is, I'll use the term accountability, that one of the hallmark characteristics of many early stage companies that do well and move on is that everybody performs or said another way, when people are not holding up their share, everyone knows because it's so visible in a small company. In a large company, it gets more challenging to do that, but not in a small company. Uh, so what I'm hearing is you have to be humble and flexible at the same time. 
Yes, it's great. And so what are some of the risks involved with working in a startup? Because it, like I said, there is that, there is everything about being humble and being flexible, but what are the risky sides of it? The biggest risk for certainly early stage is finances. There's hardly an early stage company that gets out into the market and has a runway that goes for 24, 36 months, that everybody runs from 12 to 18 months, and in many cases, even shorter. And so as CEO or as finance or some of the other functions, one of the things that people do is they focus around what is the financial runway, make sure that one doesn't overspend that runway. So that, that's a risk. Uh, and that is something that some people, when they come to an early stage company go, well, is this the experience I want? On the other hand, one controls destiny in a small company. In a large company, one can say, yes, I feel comfortable. I'm surrounded by all this overhead that keeps me, keeps me comfortable. But on the other hand, when a large company suffers a change and top management makes decisions, what happens to the rest of the employees is they're not involved in that decision making. In a small company, everyone's involved in decision making about where that company goes. And so that ability allows one to actually make a decision and being agile allows one to be in an enterprise that can shift directions, pivot and do something new and, and redirect the company. Mm. Financial. It's always one of those burdens. Yes. And, and the other thing about a small company, large companies, when they make expenditures, they make budgets and they, they, they do budgets and budgets are really important because over several hundred or thousands of employees, once a budget goes out, it ripples through the system and trying to control the expenditures at the micro level is almost impossible. Whereas in a small company, one can go through and actually manage the expenses very carefully. So that's also a, a capability that small enterprises have. So what are some of the benefits of working on a startup? I know we see the risk about the financial burden, but what are some of the benefits of that? Uh, um, having a large impact on the future in tech companies, being able to change the direction of what happens in a given area, whether it's in software, you know, software as a service, devices, whether it's just brand new experiences, that can happen with these tech startups. Large companies try to do that, but actually what you see out of many large companies is they look to the smaller companies to find innovation that they can bring in. And that's being able to do that and do that quickly in a small company is, is just a great experience. And the ability to innovate, uh, having small teams, excuse me, small teams and really smart people together, uh, the whole innovation factor is something that can be done much more agilely in a small company than in a large company. Mm, and so what appeals you since you've done five startups? What is appealing to you to do startups? Uh, everything I just named, the ability to affect the direction of the company, the ability to adjust to environments, uh, working much more closely with the team, all that combined is, is just a great experience. And moving on to Qualcomm, 
is one of the leading suppliers, like I said before, of mobile phones, especially in Android phones. And what marketing strategies were used to dominate that market in the mobile phone sector? I think, uh, I, I don't want to speak too much for Qualcomm. I certainly had my time there. It's been a few years since I've left. But, but Qualcomm, at the time I was there, we led by innovation and very quick responsiveness to the marketplace. And, and, and that, that interprets into leadership. So getting to the market with a chipset that meets what the market wants in the fastest possible time, beating everyone else, led to market, market leadership. And one can use the term dominance, but really it's leadership by offering what the market wants. What one can't do is give the market something they don't want and have the market accept it. It's true. And so what were the key propositions or value propositions that helped you be, well, at least the leader in mobile, the mobile space for Qualcomm from like NVIDIA and Samsung and Intel? Because they all tried their hand at it and didn't seem to work as well as it did with Qualcomm. I'll, I'll delineate some points. So NVIDIA is about graphics engines. Samsung uh, had mobile phone unit, which was a customer to Qualcomm. Samsung also had a semiconductor unit, and and they were those those folks were competing with Qualcomm. And Intel primarily did micro microprocessors. They also had a modem unit. Uh, as one knows in the public news, Intel actually backed away from that because they realized that was not one of their core competencies. So number one capability that Qualcomm has is in developing the communications modem, and then patching packing it packaging it together with computational power, with graphics engines, with vocoders, all the other engines that go into a modern day phone, yet in a compact uh, package that fits inside something like an iPhone or a Samsung phone, uh, that's competitive. Mm, yes, I mean, everybody hears it, Snapdragon CPUs, and that's one of the big things that people hear, they may not know it's Qualcomm. But moving on more to, SpaceX, how did your time at Qualcomm help you with SpaceX and kind of Virgin Atlantic and being more towards the space focus of the industry? I'll generally say that what SpaceX strives to do is to hire, but not necessarily hire traditionally. So when they reached out to me, they were looking for someone that understood how to work with the marketplace, as it were, Earlier in my career, I had worked in, in the rocket business, so I happened to know it. They didn't know at the time they recruited me, and it turned out to be a bonus. But um, it was the in, entire nature of working in, in the innovation environment, working with new products. And for SpaceX at the time, we were putting together a product that was a new value proposition into the marketplace. Mm, nice. And so moving on to that, Tell us a little bit about BridgeCom and kind of what that technology is all about. Yes. So what, what's fascinating about BridgeCom is the notion that all communications uh, in general, there's one common trait. We are all consuming more and more data and we're consuming it at a faster rate. And that faster rate has to be supported in technology. Up till now, at least for over-the-air communications, it's all been done in the RF world. There's also fiber optics for, for very long, uh, large hauling, but fiber, fiber optics can't go everywhere. So if you're gonna go over the air, it's been RF. 
but RF has its limitations in physics, and that's how much how much energy can be passed. In other words, how much speed can it support? And if one talks about going above 10 gigabits per second, 100 gigabits per second, hundreds of gigabits per second, one has to think about the optical domain, and that's what Bridgecom does. Mm, yes, I would know because I'm a gamer and a content creator, so I consume tons of data, yes. I guess you could say. So how does the technology behind Bridgecom kind of help either meld or shape the future of telecoms? Because I know 5G is coming out. Yes. So do you guys work with 5G companies as well to kind of bridge the gap for better telecoms? So 5G has its standards, has its IP already defined in the standards bodies. That said, we recognize that there are issues that will come up that need to be need to be recognized and ameliorated somehow. And one of the means is either going to fiber optics or going to an over-the-air over the air technology that can handle the data rates that are provided. One other thing that we have as a byproduct of what we do is very high security. The signal that we have is not like an RF signal that goes to everybody. It is extremely narrow and only goes to the intended user. What does that mean? That means that not only is a user getting high-speed data from us, but that data line is extremely secure. And in, in our case, we work in the infrared spectrum. It actually can't even be seen. And so one gets high speed with the side benefit of a secure communication. Uh, yes, we're all aware of that with all the news coming about about privacy hacking and all the data collection going on from other companies as well. So will your tech be more of a competitor for 5G or will it enhance the 5G capabilities? It's a great question. RF is not going away anytime soon. Our spectrum, there is a little bit of spectrum left. It is going to be exploited as best as possible. There's concepts like dynamic spectrum allocation, the use of public bands and reusing them so that government bands and, and private bands could be all combined and used to the optimal methods. What is everyone trying to do? They're trying to get the most efficient use of RF, but at the end of the day, we need more capacity and more throughput, and that's why optical communications is gonna be there to complement what's in RF and be able to extend the usage of RF by allocating areas that don't have to use RF, use optical. And so it's a great complementary technology. So will we finally be seeing an end to week or drop signals, maybe? That's all about the end user coverage from cell sites. And no matter what, you do a, a operators do a balance between capital investment and user revenue. And that balance says some percent of the time, they're going to find drop calls. It's, it's just the nature of the business. Darn. Really yeah. wanted to eliminate Darn. drop calls. It's all good. But anyways, moving on to kind of wondering what you're more excited about. What are you excited about in the tech and space industry in the field? Like what excites you? So space has some very big promise coming from the low Earth orbit telecom constellations, whether it's from SpaceX, from Amazon, from others. And, 
and it has the potential of providing very high bandwidth, not only to urban, suburban areas, but more importantly, to rural uh, and developing areas. And, and we all know now that thing that, that is on our desk that we carry with us is part of the first world experience. And that if someone that's in a rural developing area can't have that mobile device, they're actually in the second world, not because of economic reasons, but, be but because of communications reasons. And that's how important that device is. So it is exciting that, in fact, we raise everybody's levels because higher and higher communications capability is coming to all of us. And that will be one discrimination that doesn't exist. Mm, so basically democratizing yes. wireless communication. You bet. All right. And so do you have any advice for people that may want to get into the science, the space, the tech, or the startup field? Do you have any advice for them? It, it's one of, if one understands, eyes wide open, risks involved, the, the, the commitment that one makes, then yes, go into an early stage company, go into a startup, go do a tech thing. It's a lot of fun, but on the other hand, it requires dedication. If one really, uh, I mean, work-life balance is important, and we certainly practice some level of it, but, but early stage companies require a pretty strong commitment. And, and it's not that people don't work hard in the jobs they have, but uh, when one knows that a commitment to a company can make the difference between that early stage company doing well or doing mediocre, and, it, and it's very visible by all of their team members, it's a different kind of experience than being in a larger company. Mm. Wise words. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yes, I can only encourage if one has the notion, they enjoy technology, they enjoy rapid change, that they should at least look at it, go investigate it, see if it's a part of your career, doesn't matter where you are in your career, and do you want to go experience it once? Because one may find they love it, or they may find, you know what, this is not for me. At least in your career, you can say, I've tried it. It wasn't for me, or I tried it. It was great. Or do your best to try everything you can. That is an opportunity. Yes. All right. Anything else? No, I think it's good. All right. Thank you again, Barry, for joining us. We really appreciate you giving us insight into that aspect of your work and kind of the industry in general. You bet. Take care. And thank you, as always, listeners, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to PR360 at all the major podcasting hosting sites that iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and Stitcher. And join us next week when we find another great host in the tech and PR field who discuss the important issues. I'm your host, Brett Dyster, and have a good week. See you next week later. 